0: to move. You won't be able to scream. You won't be able to take your eyes off of Elvira's Haunted Hills. Allow me to present Elvira.
1: Welcome back to the Bloody Pit. I have a very special guest today, someone who I met just a few years ago at uh, several different conventions uh, in Kentucky and Pennsylvania. And uh, honestly, it's just a blast to be able to sit around and listen to this man tell stories because he has a lengthy career. Uh, both behind the camera, and he has ducked his head onto camera a few times. But he's also a writer. Uh, He's written a couple of books, including a new one that's about to come out. Uh, Actually should be out by the time you hear this. I would like to welcome to the podcast, Sam Irvin.
0: Hey, Rodney. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really, uh, really thrilled that we got to do this.
1: Well, of course, I, I started talking to you a couple of days ago simply because uh, we both share a bizarre interest in uh, Tarzan. Uh, your interest seems to stem directly from uh, the, the the joy you get from uh, Buster Crabbe, who you described as your favorite Tarzan, which took me aback. Yeah. Uh, because uh, most you know he was in a uh, a serial back in the uh, 30s that is mostly lost these days and uh, but you have absolutely gorgeous uh, is it, that is a that is an original piece of art from uh the fil- the, the, the the serial's release back in the day that you have now hanging in your Tarzan bathroom am i correct yes
0: it's uh it's a one sheet for the third installment of the serial of Tarzan the Fearless and this particular <laughs> episode is Thundering Death, which I thought was perfect for a bathroom. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I've just always been a big fan of Buster Crab. I loved all the serials he did of, of Flash Gordon and Tarzan and stuff. And uh, so I've just had a, you know, a real interest in him. Although I like Johnny Weissmuller and you know lots of the other Tarzans as well. But um, I decided to. Uh, I was redoing my bathroom, and it's not a very big bathroom. It just has, you know, it's actually two tiny little cubicles. There's one outer area that is the sink area, and then the sort of inner sanctum where the toilet and the shower are. And I just decided, you know, I, I think I want to do this as a Tarzan bathroom. And so I got leopard carpet that happened to be remnants. <laughs> From uh, from Miley Cyrus, <laughs> um, I had her say the same carpet salesman, and I was looking for carpet for leopard carpet, and he said, "Well, I have these remnants. We just finished a big job for Miley Cyrus," and I'm like, "I will take it," and uh, <laughs> and then it painted the walls all this dark forest green, and then started collecting, you know, Tarzan figures and statues and animal, you know. Zebras and cougars and lion, you know, ceramic heads and stuff on the wall, nothing real, of course. Uh, No, and then just put mostly reproductions of posters or book covers and just all kinds of stuff all over, but a few original things. And anyway, it just became kind of this running gag that you know people would want to come and tour my my Tarzan bathroom. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, that that's kind of how that came about and you mentioned this new book that I have well since this pandemic there was a toilet paper sort of a pandemic paper panic where all the shelves were empty and nobody could find toilet paper and I literally we were down to our last roll and I'm like oh my god I just got to find toilet paper and I went to a grocery store and I'm like talking to the guy in the front you know what do I do and he said well you got to come back first thing in in the morning because we're supposed to get a shipment late tonight and after we close and so if you're here first thing in the morning you'll probably get it and then he said oh shoot wait a minute tomorrow's Wednesday that's senior day this, we opened early at 6am to 7am for seniors and they're allowed to come and shop and he said and they'll wipe all of it out so you're out of luck and I said, "Well, what's the age for seniors?" And he goes, "60 and up." So you're, you know, you're too young. And I said, "Ah, wait one minute. <laughs> <laughs> I am 63." And he said, "You're not." I said, "Yes." And I pulled out my ID and proved it. So I came back the next morning, and sure enough, I was able to get full of paper. So I was telling this story to my sister. Later that day, and we were laughing about, you know, what this, what the world has come to. This is what it's come to. It's like, you know, trying to get a freaking frickin' toilet paper. And we were tackling, and I thought, you know, I want to write this up as a little essay, a, a humorous essay. And so I did that, and I put that on my Facebook, and people were really enjoying that. Then I decided I'm going to do a reading, a little dramatic reading of it. So I just took my iPhone. Sat down in my Tarzan bathroom, next to my bronze monkey toilet paper holder, and, and and just read through the story and posted that on Facebook, and people were cackling about that and loving it. And then it just and then because I have nothing better to do, I decided, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to make this into a parody of a little golden book, those little children's books. So this uh, cartoonist friend of mine agreed to do all the drawings, and so we, this all got started April 1st on April Fool's Day, and six weeks later. Yeah, and six weeks later we have a book and it's coming out um, from uh, Amazon. It'll be available on Amazon in paperback and in ebook or pendles on May 21st. So this may be airing even after that date. But uh, if you just go on Amazon and look up, and it's called Sam's Toilet Paper Taper, and you will find it. And um, it costs $10 whether you get the paperback or the ebook. And all profits go to the World Health Organization's uh, COVID 19 Solidarity Response Fund, which is the same charity that uh, that big Lady Gaga TV special that was carried on abc nbc and cbs a few weeks ago it was hosted by jimmy fallon and jimmy kimmel and and stephen um stephen colbert and uh so i figured okay if they've all vetted this this charity then it's got to be good (laughs) so um so that's what i went with and uh and it's just the most fun thing and there are drawings of me in my Tarzan bathroom and the bronze monkey toilet paper holder kind of the character almost of this thing, but it's drenched in movie references. So for instance, the I recast the the uh, the grocery store clerk in the book. He's Peter Laurie. <laughs> um, there are references to for everything from Sound of Music to Harry to The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly to Julie Newmar as Catwoman. Um, you name it; it's all it's 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 a really fun little crazy uh, journey, a fantasia that I go through to get toilet paper, and it's it's only you know it's 24 pages, just like those little golden books. And uh, and I'm really excited about it. I, I've had more fun doing this than just about anything I can remember. So um, pick pick up a copy, and the the cause is a good one too.
1: I was done when you sent me the uh, cover. I was just so surprised by it. The uh, because it looks <laughs> exactly like. I mean, of course you're you know exactly what you're aiming for, but the the artist is fantastic, and he's he's mimicked that little golden book look perfectly.
0: Yes. Yeah. We really did, and. Uh, so hopefully we won't get sued by the, the little golden book people. We are, we are a parody and under, under U.S. law, parodies, are, you know, have a great latitude to, to make fun of things. So of pop culture things. So we're, we're all protected, but anyway, it's uh it's lovingly uh, an homage to those books.
1: Now, mostly I know you, or at least most people, I guess these days would know you as a filmmaker, but man, you know, you started out, as a, a fanboy, just like us, uh, us normals out oh, yeah. here. Uh, you, 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 I
0: still am a fanboy, just
1: like I know you're a mo- you're a monster on. kid made good, buddy.
0: Yeah, a monster kid for sure. Well, I I was very lucky because I was born into a family that, went, my dad owned movie theaters, and my grandfather was was a district manager of another chain of movie theaters, so. I could get into just about any movie for free where I grew up in North Carolina. I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and my dad had theaters in Asheville, North Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and Spartanburg, and some, you know, and it was just, um, so from the earliest age, I was, you know, that was my playground, and that's my older sisters would, if they were babysitting me, they'd take me to the theater, and we'd sit through movies, and we'd sit through them multiple times, and I'd go up to the projection booth and hang out up there like the little kid in Cinema Paradiso, and it was just a magical kind of experience, and when I got, uh, well, when I was eight years old, we decided to, or my family went on a cross-country road trip to California in the summer, and to go to Disneyland and all of that. And believe it or not, this was, I think this was before Disney World even opened. It was 1964. I was, I was born in 56, so I was eight years old. And my, because of my dad's connections in the movie business, he was able to get us a VIP tour at Warner Brothers Studios. And
2: huh.
0: I, I mean, I pinch myself to this day. We, we walked onto the set of Blake Edwards the great race wow. where they were wow. shooting in a gigantic tank of water an iceberg sequence with antique cars on the iceberg, all the main stars on the iceberg, Jack lemon, Tony Curtis and Natalie Wood, and they, we watched them shoot <laughs> this scene. And then we, they did a storm sequence where were waves and rain machines and, uh, and wind machines. the eyes just popped right out of my freaking head. I, as an (laughs) eight year old kid, I thought if they were going to shoot an iceberg, they would have to go up to the North pole and wait for a storm. You know, I had no idea this could be created on a stage in Hollywood. And it just absolutely blew me away. Then we went into another stage where they were building a model mansion that was forced perspective. It was the model was maybe Four feet high, you know, it was a pretty big size model of a, of this big mansion. But it was so interesting to see grown men standing next to it, like adjusting the, uh, you know, the chimneys or whatever. And and you know they were, you know, towering over it like Godzilla. And this mansion was up on a hill that they had created on the stage. But down from the hill in the foreground was a full-size fence and gate and entryway and they had actors you know a I i think a policeman that was going to walk by and everything to give it the look you know so you would you feel like the foreground was absolute in scale to kind of give the, it three dimensions <laughs> yes. yeah and they but it was the, you know they call it forced perspective where the the house on the hill in the background looked like it was full size um in the camera, you know, to the camera. Now, I couldn't believe it. I was like, no, that's not going to work. Because when you're standing there on the stage, you can totally tell that that's a model. <laughs> a smaller house. And and then when I saw the film, it totally sold as full size. And so, you know, again, it was just like, whoa, you know, just blew me away that this force, the whole idea of forced perspective could work. And then the other thing that we did, we went to a yet another stage that same day where they were shooting a film called Two on a Guillotine and it starred Dean Jones and Connie Stevens and they were sitting in a little um, chairlift kind of thing but it was uh, an enclosed sort of dome and it was cut in half so, that you, so the camera could see them sitting there and behind them was rear screen projection of them you know being on this uh, of, of the chairlift in the air yeah so again you know i get introduced to the whole concept of rear screen projection and so it was just one thing after another where i was like holy moroli and this was all in just oh, one day yes in one in one afternoon wow and then the director was william conrad who we know as an actor who did the Canon series and everything, he came over to me and he said, you know, we want a little redheaded boy for a scene that we're shooting next week. Would you be able to come back and be in that scene? So I'm, I'm even being offered my first role in a movie. Oh my, and my parents are like, well, that's the day we're supposed to be in the Grand Canyon. We can't do that. And so I'm like, oh my god! So I had to turn down my first acting offer. So, uh, but anyway, my, my dad had a eight millimeter home movie camera, and I just literally took it, took it out of his hand, and never gave it back. And I just, when we got back home. I just started making little eight millimeter films. And, um, as the years went on, I ended up having a younger brother who had, who was, my mother was actually pregnant that summer with him. But, um, as he got a little bit older, I would get him to play Dracula using a beach, a black beach towel as a cape and, you know, lots of ketchup and all kinds you know, of course it's just all of that, that we all did as, as monster kids. And, um, but it was that day that I decided I wanted to direct movies and, and much, much to the consternation of teachers and everything else. Cause I just had an absolute one track mind. That's all I cared about. That's all I wanted to think about. Whenever there were essays to write, whenever there were open projects that you could do at school, mine was always, I want to make a film. I want to talk about film. I want to whatever. And they tried to discourage me because they just didn't feel like that was a realistic, you know, goal to have in life. And, I just was, you know, it just made me want to prove them wrong all the more. And so as I got older, I went to uh, film school at the University of South Carolina in, uh, Colum- in Columbia, South Carolina. And by then, I was a, had become a huge fan of Brian De Palma. And I uh, decided I was head of, the, of course, the film committee, and we ran a theater on campus and everything. And I decided, OK, we're going to do a Brian De Palma film festival. We're going to show Sisters in a show Phantom of the Paradise and a couple of his other earlier films like Hi Mom and Greetings that had Robert De Niro and stuff. And I looked up in the trade paper, in the trade journals like Hollywood Reporter and Variety because my dad subscribed to those because he was in the business and found out in the production charts that Brian De Palma was in, he lived in New York but he was in Hollywood casting a movie called Carrie and they listed a phone number for the casting office. So I just called that number, and they put him on the phone They were during a break. And I explained what we were doing, and he said, hey, I'm broke. I really need to get some stuff at my apartment in New York. If you'll give me the airfare to South Carolina, then to New York for the weekend, and then get me back to L.A., I will come for the Triangle Airfare. And I said, done. <laughs> he came out. We we I took him around to some film classes. He he showed them how he storyboarded his films, and he was you you know using the the chalkboards to draw panels of things, and it, it was absolutely unbelievable. And on Saturday night, we had a we scheduled a midnight show, A Fan of the Paradise, and we told everyone to come in costume, and that Diploma would would uh, judge the best costume and there were prizes and everything, so the whole place was sold out. It was like a 300-seat theater and everybody was psyched. Almost everybody in the place was in some sort of costume. We we do the judging, give out the awards. Everybody is just so excited. And we start the movie and if you recall, the opening shot is the logo of the, the dead bird swan mm. records and then it starts to swirl around and there's no sound and i'm like, oh my god i jump up out of my chair run up to the projection booth and it turned out that the sound bulb for the optical soundtrack had burned out and it was saturday night after midnight there was no extra bulb and there was no place yes. to get one and we had to cancel the screening and send everyone home and I thought all the goodwill that I have built up with De Palma up to this moment has just been flushed down. The and no, of God. course, what really happened is that De Palma has a very, very wicked sense of humor and he thought it was hilarious. Thank God. And, um, as years went on, I, the next summer after Carrie came out, it was a huge hit. Between my junior and senior year, I um, now, of course, had his personal home phone number, and I called him up and asked him if I could come to Chicago to work as a production assistant on The Fury, and he said yes during my summer break. So I went up there, and I got an assignment from Fantastic Magazine to write a journal on the making of the film, which I did, and that allowed me access to... You know, do one on one interviews with everybody involved in that film, from Kirk Douglas to John Cassavetes to composer John Williams to the editor, Paul Hirsch, who did Star Wars. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. And then uh, after that, De Palma did a low budget film called Home Movies. And I was just graduating from college and he called me up and said, you want to come up and work on this? We're shooting it this summer. And I said, of course. And I didn't even take, I, I didn't even go to my graduation ceremony. I just took my last <laughs> exam and hopped on a plane. And I figured I was going to work as a production assistant, like I did on the Fury. And I get off the plane and go up to Sarah Lawrence College, where they are going to shoot it on location there. And he said, you're going to be the associate producer and production manager. So he just basically threw me into the deep end <laughs> to see if I could swim. And... And the movie starred Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon and Vincent Gardenia and, and, and Garrett Graham, who played Beef in Fan of the Paradise. I mean, I was just in freaking heaven. And then after that, he hired me permanently as his full time assistant. And I worked on Dress to Kill and with Michael Caine and Angie Dickinson and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon again and worked on a lot of other projects he had in development and worked on, on uh, all the pre-production of Blowout and got to meet Travolta and everything. But then, as it was about to start shooting, uh, De Palma recommended me to produce a low-budget film called The First Time uh, that we did for New Line Cinema. So anyway, I kind of went off on and did my own thing after that. But what I was going to say about canceling that of the Paradise screening is that De Palma loved to tell that story. Every time he, somebody, he would say, this is the freaking kid who, you know, botched this entire screening, didn't Didn't have the foresight to have an extra sound bulb, and was like, oh, here we go again with this story. So, yeah, he, he totally loved to tell that story. And I ran into Paul Hurst, the editor of... Star Wars and who had you know worked and and did had, had worked with us back in those uh, you know I got to meet him on the fury and stuff and he he just came out with a book in, in the past year about all of his editing and stuff it's an incredible book but Paul still remembered that story to this day I mean you know I'm like, <laughs> all these decades later, and I'm like oh my god I'm never gonna
1: live. oh Lord <laughs>
0: Uh, Anyway, so that was the long-winded beginning of my career. And then after the diploma stuff, then I... Well, there's a lot of stuff that I skipped over that we should go back and talk about if we have time. Well, the
1: fanzines, your early working fanzines in the late '60s, I've always been impressed by because that if you started out with this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the great race being made, obviously, you know, it just seemed like a natural thing for you to try to go and interview all these, you know, movie yeah. stars, Joan Collins and Peter Cushing well, and Christopher Lee and Vincent Price. That's
0: exactly what I started doing. I, I just, I wanted to get back on a movie. And I was just desperate to meet all of my idols. And I was such a Hammer film fan and, uh, you know, Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and all that. I was also a huge, huge Vincent Price fan. And I'd gotten to meet Vincent Price when he had gone on tour around America with his, uh, you know, he did a lecture tour series about his own career. And then he later... Went around in a one-man show of Oscar Wilde, and he would sometimes tour around for Sears with his artwork, uh, and he, he was a buyer for their for their gallery of artwork sales, and there were just there were all these different times when I would seek out and go see him, and so he kind of got to know me a little bit as I like go super fan groupie, and I wrote in letters all the time <laughs> and whatnot. So then. Um, I start this fanzine, it's called Bizarre, when I'm in high school, and I do one a year, I work on it during the summer, and so it was an annual thing that would come out in the summer, and I would review all the horror movies that had been released in the past year, but then I would do interviews with as many people as I could get to interview. Now, the first couple of issues, the interviews were done through the mail. (laughs) They were questionnaires, and I would send to, I had, my second issue, I had questionnaire interviews with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Ingrid Pitt, uh, and some you know some of the directors at, at, uh, at Hammer and stuff. I mean it was incredible, but, but I was getting to know them at least through correspondence if, and in the case of Vincent Price actually in person. And then by when I uh, did the third issue, which was the summer of 74, I was, I had just graduated from high school. And my parents said, you know, what do you want as a high school, uh, you know, graduation present?" And I said, I want you to send me to London so I can meet some of these people that I've been corresponding with and I can interview them for the magazine and interview them in person. And they freaking said, yes, (laughs) which is unbelievable. unbelievable. And I'm sent over there by myself and I write, of course, immediately write letters to everybody to tell them I'm coming. Christopher Lee writes back and says, when you get here, call me at this number. and And I did. And he invited me to come and have lunch with him at Pinewood Studios, where I can interview him over lunch. And I go out there. And he's conveniently forgotten to mention what project it is he's working on at Pinewood Studios. It's just a little film called The Man with the Golden Gun, the second Roger Moore, James Bond movie. And... (laughs) <laughs> he's been re- he's been released for lunch an hour early because I guess they finished one of his scenes and they were working on something else. So we have lunch and I do the interview and then and then Roger and then about an hour into that of Roger Bohr and Britt Eklund and. Bob Adams come in to the commissary and Christopher Lee introduces me to all of them. And they're like, oh, we just broke for lunch. And Christopher said, well, we're done. So we're I'm I'm going to take this young man and give him a tour of the James Bond sets. So for the next <laughs> hour, while the, while the rest of the cast and crew are eating lunch, I'm being given a personal private tour of the James Bond sets by Christopher Lee. It was unbelievable unbelievably crazy and dream come true total dream come true and i was a huge james bond movie fan as well and so i mean this was unbelievable but he's showing me through his character's name was scaramanga and he's showing me through his lair and we're going through this little corridor and and the walls are lined in this butterfly collection behind glass you know, just a quirky little character trait of the character, barely seen in the film. But they've gone to all this great expense to have just hundreds of butterflies pinned up on these, you know, in this display cases, And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Are these butterflies real? And Christopher really says, "Um, this is a James Bond film, not a hammer film. <laughs> of course, they're real. And when he said hammer film, it was like he was talking about dog poop on the bottom of his shoe. His nostrils flared. He was just yeah. looking so down at that, at, this, at his past history of doing those low budget horror films. And he didn't like the word horror, by the way, he called them terror films. He thought that horror was was not a, a word to ever use. And uh, so it was just really interesting that he really, really desperately wanted to work on A-list movies with the big boys. And to his credit, he ended up doing exactly that. He, I mean, you know, in his later career, he worked with George Lucas and Peter Jackson and Martin Scorsese and Hugo and Steven Spielberg in nineteen forty-one and Tim Burton and several films. And, you know, he really did work with all the big boys. But the only reason that those big boys were using Christopher Lee and excited to cast him is because they were all Hammer film fans and they loved exactly. 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 <laughs> so it, anyway, his, it just always cracked me up that he you know, had this sort of disdain for that embarrassing career as a horror star, whereas someone like Peter Cushing, who I also met and interviewed, um, you know, he was just happy to be a star in any in any form, and was and you know enjoyed making those films, and was much more relaxed about the idea that he was a big fish in a smaller pond and was perfectly content to do that. And uh, the contrast between them was so amazing. But at the end of the day of the one, and then he had me watch, Christopher Lee had me watch the shooting once they got back from lunch for the rest of the day. And uh, at the end of the day, he said, do you want to, do you want to hop in the Rolls Royce limo that we're taking back to London? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And so I get into the back of this Rolls limo and, seated on the back seat is Christopher Lee and Hervé Villachez who was playing his sidekick and I'm sitting on the fold down chair facing them and Hervé is drunk as a skunk already and he starts to tell stories about all of the prostitutes that he's hired since he's been in London and going into great detail as to what he has done with each and every one of them, and using all this foul language and coming up with all these, you know, ridiculous words for all of the things that he's done and body parts and everything. and Christopher Lee starts to giggle and then starts to laugh and then starts to double over, laughing in hysterics and tears streaming down his face. And I'm just laughing along with it, and we're both. Just total hysterics. Every time we try to compose ourselves, then Hervey will say, you know, I, I don't want to say it, but, you know, he'll say another. Believe word. me, you, can, you can
1: say it. It's fine. OK, well, you
0: know, he, he, he was likely, you know, every other word was pussy this, and, you know, whatever. But it, and it would just be one of those words. And then suddenly <laughs> or I would bust the gut again and get the other one laughing. It was the <laughs> most hilarious car ride I've ever had. And when we dropped Christopher Lee off first at his place at 45 Conduggan Square, I'll never forget it. We were pulling away from the curb and I look out the back window and Christopher is hanging on to the gate of his his townhouse. And he's just doubled over just laughing so hard, trying to compose himself before he goes in to face his wife and and I'm sure her going, what are you laughing at? And he's not wanting to tell her. (laughs) It was was the most magical, magical day. And then the whole trip, this whole trip to London in 1974 was magical. I wanted to interview Diana Riggs. I was a huge fan of hers from the Avengers TV series where she played Emma Peel. of course. Aren't we all? From the James Bond movie on Her Majesty's Secret Service. I was a huge fan of her for Theater of Blood, where she played Vincent Price's daughter, which had just been made, you know, a year or two earlier. And so I was desperate to interview her. And she was one of the people that I was having a hard time getting in touch with. And so I found out that she was appearing on stage on the West End in Pygmalion, where she was playing Eliza Doolittle. Pygmalion, of course, for those who don't know, is the basis for My Fair Lady. It's the, the non-musical version. So I decided I'm going to go see that play. I'd love to see her in that. And I'll go to the stage door after and see if I can meet her and at least get an autograph if nothing else, but maybe talk her into doing an interview. So I go into the theater Oh, of course it was just sold out and I had I but that never stopped me. I would I always knew that there'd be somebody selling a ticket out front, you know, as there usually is. And as luck would have it, somebody was, and it was an incredible seat down in the orchestra, right in the middle. Nice. And so I go and I sit down and I'm waiting for the show to start, and then I hear this very familiar laugh right behind me. I turn around and it's Vincent Price and his new wife, Coral Brown, whom he had met during the production of Theater of Blood, because, <laughs> and he was first introduced to her by Diana Rigg. Yeah. <laughs> and before I can say anything, he immediately recognizes me and goes, Sam, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> so I can what I'm doing there. And my little, you know, that I want to try to meet Diana Rigg. And he goes, well, you're coming backstage with us after the show, young man. So he takes me back and (laughs) we have champagne and he, you know, puts Diana on the spot and says, you know, you're going to have to do an interview with this young man for his magazine. And so she agrees to do that. She tells me to come back on Wednesday when they do a matinee and an evening performance. And she said, I'm always hanging out in my dressing room between... Those two shows, and that'll be the perfect time. And so I went back and I did, and it was it was fabulous. But my life back then was just it it just had these incredibly strange, charmed coincidences and things that happened that just it was unbelievable. My luck ran out later on. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's what uh so my fanzine bazaar was all about, you know, doing these interviews with these people and getting. To go visit sets like the Bond set, or just being able to interview them in person, and it was it was incredible. So, um, but I, you know, interviewed just I mean the list of thirty people, and um you know, it was every Terrence Fisher, the great Hammer film director, uh, not only Michael Carreras, who was head of Hammer Films, but his father, James, Sir James Carreras, who started the company, and. Right. Did you get to interview Terrence Fisher in person? Yes. I went to his house. Wow. His oh, wife. my God. I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable. Everything was just crazy. I went to Robert Hughes' house. He's the director of the two Dr. Fives movies. Yeah. And went to James Bernard, the great composer, and spent time at his house. And, uh, you know, just it, it just crazy stuff. Ingrid Pitt became a really good friend. I had done correspondence interviews with her. Then I met her in person. Then I went to London two summers in a row. I got my parents to send me back the following summer. And and I kept hooking up with with Ingrid Pitt every time I would go there. And she was like, you know, a, a second mother to me almost. And then when she came to the famous Monsters Convention in New York in 1975, She asked me, are you coming? And I'm like, well, if you're going to be there and Peter Cushing is a guest, you bet I am. And she said, would you be my aide-de-camp for the weekend? And I'm like, yeah. So I hung out with her the whole weekend and is kind of a bodyguard and just somebody to help her as an assistant and whatnot. And... Sat next to her when she's, you know, doing signing autographs and everything. But then she would take me to all the VIP dinners and she'd seat me, you know, next to her and and there'd be Peter Cushing and Michael Carreras and Ari Ackerman, the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland and and who was the publisher of those magazines and Barbara Lee, who they were presenting as as the actress who was going to play Vampirella that never did get off the ground. Oh and, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, it was just wine and dined, and it was again just another one of those crazy charmed experiences. And um, but it, at any rate, so you know, yeah, I was a serious, serious monster kid in those days, and still am to this day. And um, but after okay, so fanzine, then working for De Palma and all of that. I, what I of course really wanted to do was direct. And I finally got my, a short film that I did, um, uh, that I edited in De Palma's editing room. He, he let me use his facilities for that. And it was called double negative. It was a 20 minute short about a horror film director who's making a low budget horror film called coat hanger massacre. And <laughs> the, uh, his sleazy producers who are, I wrote the script for it too. And I named them Max and Milt after Max J Rosenberg and Milton Zabatsky of Amicus, Amicus yeah. which was the big competitor of hammer for those who don't know. Uh, and they did all those anthology films like tales from the crypt and vault of horror and uh, Dr. Terror's house of horrors, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, so anyway, this in the, in my little short, this horror film director, his sleazoid producers decide that they're going to make more money if they steal the negative from the lab and, and destroy it and collect the insurance money than if it actually get finished and, and come out. So the leading lady in that film within the film is also working as their secretary, and she overhears this a lot. And she runs to the to to our director, tells him, and says, "We've got to steal that negative first, and put dummy negative in the lab, <laughs> so when they steal it, they're not really stealing anything, and we've got to save our film." And so that's what they do. And then they set up surveillance cameras to catch them in the act, and blah blah blah. And you know, so anyway, it was it was a cute little you know comedic thing, and I cast. Bill Randolph is the horror director. He played the cab driver in Dress to Kill. Um, in flashbacks of him being a prodigy film student, uh, at, like going to college at age, you know, nine, um, I got Justin Henry, who was the little boy from Kramer versus Kramer, and the two producers, um, Max and Milt, I got William Finley, who was the Phantom of the Paradise, mm-hmm. and, and the evil doctor and Sisters, Um, And then for the other producer, I got Wayne Knight, who everybody knows is Newman from Seinfeld. And he was also in Jurassic Park. And he's one of the interrogators in Basic Instinct when Sharon (laughs) Stone uncrunches her legs. And anyway, famously. famously, And um, so we just had this amazing cast and uh, and did this thing. We shot it in 35 millimeter and then it got accepted at Sundance and got a lot of buzz there. And then it opened theatrically in L.A. with uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. It played in New York with uh, Emerald Forest, the the film, film, and got reviewed in the New York Times by Janet Maslin and got a great review. And so that was my sort of calling card to then launch my directing career, which didn't happen right away. (laughs) <laughs> and I had to somehow pay for this short film that I had done, and I had put on credit cards. So while I'm trying to get my feature film directing career going, I end up getting sidetracked to pay for everything by getting a regular nine-to-five job. So I got a job working in film marketing at uh, first at United Artists Classics. I knew the people there because they had released home movies, the Brian De Palma film that I associate produced, so I doubted to know them. And I had a lot of experience in film marketing, because I worked a little bit w- in my college days for my dad's movie theaters and, and in the advertising department. So I was very familiar with, with all the machinations that go into that. And so I was at United Artists Classics, and they at that time, it was it was headed up by Tom Bernard, Michael Barker, and John Gelati, who later formed... Sony classics and they're just all legends in the business. Donna had previously, I had got I had known her, crossed paths with her, because she had been Martin Scorsese's assistant at the same time I was Brian De Palma's assistant. And Brian and Martin were good pals. And one day Martin, you know, Brian took me to the set of, of Raging Bull. And, you know, we watched a little bit of De Niro working on that. And so I knew Donna a bit. So it was it was just a an easy transition to go in and work with that company, and I was there for I was like an assist like the assistant director of advertising and I was there very briefly when the head of the advertising department, Ira Deutschman, left to go form Cinecom. and within just a few weeks, I got promoted to be director of advertising I was. <laughs> <laughs> I started designing posters. I did the poster for Veronica Voss, the the uh, the Vossbender uh, film, and I won a Hollywood Reporter Key Art Award for the best poster of the year. <laughs> and, and then uh, just crazy stuff. And then Michael and, and Donna and Tom left to form Sony Classics and another woman from United Arts Classics named Linda B. She asked if I would go with her to form a company called Spectra Film, which was also going to, you know, release imports and, and art market kind of movies. And I, she would make me vice president of marketing. And so I left and we formed that company and there we had, we imported, our, our biggest hit was The Fourth Man, which was a Paul Verhoeven film. Yeah, and. Yeah. I designed the poster for that and won another key art award from Hollywood Reporter, And um, it was, you know, again, it was just so much fun. It was going to festivals and be, you know, taking um, these filmmakers around. With all this
1: recognition during during this period of time doing that particular job, did you think that maybe you had stumbled onto what you should be concentrating on instead?
0: Yes and no. I mean, I, I felt like, okay, I guess I have a knack at this. And I was doing very well, and I was making really good money, and I was miserable because I wasn't directing movies. And, I, uh. I, and every time I would meet a director like Paul Verhoeven, uh, I was just so jealous of what they were doing, you know? And it was just... So I knew that I had to... I, You know, this just wasn't... It, it was very cushy. It was paying off my bills. I was paying off the film that I had done and everything. Mm-hmm. But... A couple of things happened that actually, you know, were terrible in the moment, but but I'm really glad they happened. Spectrofilm, uh there, there was some mismanagement of money, nothing to do with me, but of, of some of the investors and whatnot. In any at any rate, the film company ended up going bankrupt and I found myself suddenly out of a job. Then I I got hired by Vestron and they were a very big uh Company right when you know video cassettes and everything were become you know had become really big, and they and it was right at the time that they were releasing a film called Earth Girls Are Easy with Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis, and it was written by Julie Brown, who I love the redheaded comedian Julie Brown. Yeah, she's wonderful. That was a very fun movie too. It was, and she and Julie wrote it and and co-starred in it, and it also had Jim Carrey in one of his early films and. Uh, Marlon, I mean uh, Damon Wayans. I mean, it was an incredible cast, and it was just. And so when they, when Bestron hired me as uh, vice president of marketing, that was literally had had opened that weekend, and it tanked. It was, and so you know my job was to come in and try to salvage it and redesign the campaign, you know, come up with something for the second weekend to try to save this this disaster. And I was such a fan of Julie Brown. I put her, you know, the ads had kind of put Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum and it looked like this sort of romantic thing. And they weren't really pushing this sci-fi imagery too much. And so I put I put Julie Brown and Gina Davis with their hair done up in all these weird foils. Like they were actually just getting their hair dyed. But it looked crazy and and tried to give it, you know, make it look just funnier. And Julie Brown was really big at that time on MTV. She had a sketch comedy show called Just Say Julie. And, you know, she was she was really hot. And she'd also had a very famous um, novelty video that was in heavy rotation on MTV called The Homecoming Queens Got a Gun. And it was the yeah. yeah. good yeah. thing. But she was really hot. And I just couldn't believe that they hadn't, promoted her in a big way. So we tried. And, you know, but as things go, I mean, you know, the second weekend didn't do much better. And uh, so then...
1: Well, I can tell you that I bought a ticket to that film myself, so...
0: <laughs> Good. Well, you're one of the <laughs> but But um, the company kind of limped along for another four weeks and then went bankrupt. <laughs> so... <laughs> So before I can even really do anything, I've already lost another job with a company that's gone bankrupt. I'm like, oh, my God, somebody's trying to tell me something. And I was at a crossroads where I was like, all right, do I go out and look for yet another marketing job at another film company or do I focus on my film directing? And luckily, um, I, through another set of, of bizarre circumstances uh, a production company in Los Angeles called IRS media it was Miles Copeland who was the brother of Stewart Copeland of, of the police you know yeah. being and that whole music group um, miles Copeland had IRS records that had the police on on that label but they had started a production company called IRS media and they were they had a script Guilty as charged, they were looking for a director, and it was a very dark, comedic uh, sort of horror film about a vigilante who kidnaps murderers and fries them on his own electric chair in his dungeon. And they were getting their financing in those days from TriStar Columbia Home Video. A pre-sale for home video rights in those days was $1.2 million. Ah. And you could make a movie for that. And that's exactly what IRS Media was doing. Every single movie that they made was financed pre a pre-sale to home video at TriStar Columbia Home Video. It was almost like they were a, a, a subsidiary of of uh, TriStar Columbia. And smart move. Um, and so the head of the the guy at TriStar Columbia who would cherry pick at the projects that he would say, "Yes, we'll buy. We'll pre-buy that." It was a guy named Larry Estes. Well, I knew Larry Estes because he used to be the booker for Films Incorporated, the 16 millimeter company that rented films to college campuses. <laughs> of course. And I, I and back at the University of South Carolina, when I was scheduling like Brian De Palma film festivals, I was renting all my films. From Larry Estes, he was the salesman that I dealt with in those days, and we were really good friends. well, now he'd you know gone up the ladder and now he was a big shot at at Tristar Columbia home video. He was like on the premier magazine list of the hundred most influential people in Hollywood back in those days well he told IRS, I want to do this film, but I want you to do it with Sam Urban directing, and you got to see his short film, because it's exactly the style and flavor of this dark humor that you need for this movie. He got me to show them. He brought me out to L.A., he got me to show them my short, and, you know, what are they going to say? Um, no, we don't agree with <laughs> you, so, you know, we'll go find financing elsewhere. No, they were going to do whatever Larry said, and it was the thing that launched my first feature film. And it starred Rod Steiger, Oscar winner as as this vigilante. We had Heather Graham, who was hot off of Drugstore Cowboy. We had Lauren Hutton, who decided that we didn't have enough money to do wardrobe to her liking, so she called her friend Bob Mackie, and Bob Mackie did all of her wardrobe for free. Wow. And we had Isaac Hayes, who was, I was a huge fan of, you know, an Oscar winner for the theme from Shaft, but not only was he a musician, but he was also an actor in things like Escape from New York, the John Carpenter film.
1: Oh, and the great uh, movie truck yep. Turner, the great. He
0: was so good at yep, that. Yeah. So I was thrilled to get Isaac Hayes for that role. We also had Zelda Rubenstein from Poltergeist, and you know, oh, and then um, one of the people that were going to be fried on the electric chair. I'm like, I wonder if Mitch Pileggi from Shocker would agree to come back <laughs> and get fried again in the electric chair as sort of an inside joke. Yes. He was thrilled. He couldn't wait to work with Rod Steiger. Oh, so yeah. Had... Nice. <laughs> and uh, so it was the most incredible you know, thing that being my first feature film. In America,
1: violent crime is out of control. A mugging occurs every three minutes.
2: Hey, ladies, you can hear me in there.
1: A murder is committed every 10 minutes. Someone's got to do something. And someone is. Who are you? Just. He's a vigilante.
3: You've certainly picked an unusual hobby.
2: Hobby? Oh, no, my dear. This is not a hobby. And he's turning up the juice (laughs) on creeps. Enough to kill, old enough
3: to die. Crooks. You can't help being a coward and a murderer.
2: This doesn't change anything!
0: Maybe this will. And killers. Tonight's your
1: night. The way I look at it when your time comes, your time comes. Bingo.
0: In a mind shattering,
2: shocking, isn't it?
0: Side splitting. Ben Callan. Callan meets. I know you're
1: bacon. Hair-raising. Just pull the switch. Yeah. Spine-tingling. Justice is done. High-voltage comedy. I can get you something real special
0: for your last meal. Rod Steiger, Lauren Hutton, Heather Graham, Lyman Ward, and Isaac Hayes.
1: How about some?
0: Kentucky, right? Take no. 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 You? Guilty as charged. On the first day of shooting, Rod, you know, I'm here, I am, I'm all intimidated to work with someone of Rod Steiger's stature. And, mm. um, but he, on the very first day, he's giving, we were shooting a scene where he's giving a sort of eulogy at a podium in his dungeon. And It's so it's basically a monologue and we shoot a wide shot and then we're setting up for a a tighter shot. And and Rod comes over to me and says, what is, you know, what is the framing on this? Is it is it below the waist or above? And I said, oh, it's above the waist. It's like from, you know, chest up. And he goes, oh, thank God. And he undoes his, he unbuckles his pants, drops his pants to the floor. And he says, it's really hot in here. (laughs) And so he proceeds to do close up, just standing in his boxer shorts. And, you know. Hey, whatever works for you, I guess. Whatever works, baby, you do it. And uh, and we got along great. People always say, "Oh my God, Rod Steiger, he could be very difficult." And I'm like, "Not for me." Once he once he saw how prepared I was. I mean. Having, having worked for De Palma and, and understanding so thoroughly the the art of preparation and the art of, you know, really knowing exactly what you want when you get on that stage or on the location, um, you know, I came prepared for, for battle. And I had everything all written out and shot lists and handed it out to the crew. And Rod was immediately impressed. Uh, with that sort of preparation that I had, and you know, he felt like a a mentor and a and a godfather in a way. You know, once once he trusted that I knew what I wanted, and what then, then he was a hundred percent behind me. Well, he and must
1: have. I mean, he he worked with you on a second film.
0: Yes, he did another movie for me called Out There that we did for Showtime, and it was also produced by the same production company. And by now, Larry Estes, who had been at TriStar Columbia Home Video had left and had become an independent producer and he was producing some of his films with IRS media. And so he was now my boss. He was now my producer on that movie on out there. And we got Rod to come back. And that was a UFO comedy. So much fun. Another really incredible cast. We had uh, the lead was played by Bill Campbell, who was the rocketeer. Uh, he, his girlfriend. Well, his girlfriend was Jennifer Conley, who was his co-star in Rocketeer. That's where they met. And she was not in in our movie, but she was visiting the set all the time. Oh, okay. So one day we were shooting in a grocery store, and we needed more we we needed more extras. And I said, "Well, I, okay, I'm going to do my Hitchcock cameo. I'll get in I'll get in the grocery line." And I said, "Jennifer, hey, come on over here. Be my wife in the grocery store line." <laughs> And by the way, we cast Julie Brown
2: of
0: <laughs> from Earth Girls Are Easy. And I got to meet her at that uh, and directed her in that film. So she's in the grocery store line as a character in the film talking to Bill Campbell. And Jennifer Connelly and I are just standing there with no lines. Um, you know, so I mean, and Jennifer Connelly, of course, later goes on to win an Oscar. So it was like, holy <laughs> crap. Oh, Just as a, as a, as a, you know, an extra in our movie, we have we have an Oscar winner, and then um, the other amazing thing that happened is that we were shooting the film at CBS Radford Studios in in uh, Studio City, and one of uh, that studio, there were a lot of sitcoms and stuff shot there, like Roseanne and Seinfeld and whatnot, and there was a. Um, a a show called hearts of fire that was currently shooting and it was with um oh god what's the guy from three's company uh john ritter and it's our john ritter and one of the one of the supporting characters in that series was billy bob thornton well larry estes my producer who was the 60 millimeter booker guy and 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 Financed my first film through TriStar Columbia Home Video. Now my producer, he knew Billy Bob because one of those films that he had greenlit when he was when he was financing films a few years earlier was *One False Move*, and that was written by Billy Bob Thornton, and Billy Bob was in it, and that really was kind of you know helping to launch Billy Bob's career. Well we're in the commissary. I'm with Larry. And then Billy Bob walks in because he's on a break from this TV series, Hearts of Fire. And Larry goes, oh my God, Billy Bob, you have to meet Sam Irvin. He's directing our film. And, da, da, da. and we sit down, we have lunch. And there's this one little guest role <laughs> that we haven't asked yet. And... It's a it's a jail cell. It's a guy in a jail cell. When Bill Campbell gets put in jail overnight, he has to share the cell with this very strange guy. And Larry said, "You know, Billy Bob would be great in that in that one little scene cameo." And I'm sure we can get him to do it. We can get him on a, a day off. And that's exactly what we did. And so Billy Bob came in and he rewrote the dialogue. He came up with all this funny stuff. Nice and. Was just killing it, and he. But during breaks, he was telling us about how, as soon as he, as soon as he would be on hiatus from the TV series, he was going off to direct a film that he had written, and he was also going to star in, called Sling Blade, little movie. <laughs> and he was telling us he was he was going into character as the Sling Blade character, and that then that very distinctive voice. And telling us all about the movie and everything, and we're looking at each other like, oh, well, good luck with that. Okay, yeah, that sounds great. Well, of course, it turns into this, you know, gigantic, award-winning, huge hit on the art house market movie that truly launched his career. And, uh, you know, and, and there's been a... Looking back since then, but we got Billy Bob just days before he went off to make Blade.
1: Well, I, just to show you uh, what level of geekdom I am, uh, also in that film, one of my favorite little-known character actors, Paul Dooley.
0: Yes. Well, and um, I love Paul Dooley so much, and and he he was in it. We also had, um, I mean, everybody: June Lockhart, Jill Saint John from Diamonds Are Forever. And and her husband, you know, I wanted her husband to be in it, too, but he he was not available. But her husband, of course, being Robert Wagner, (laughs) Wagner would come and pick her up at the end of the day when we were shooting. So we got to meet Robert Wagner. And it was just everybody was in that film. We had Robert Picardo from Star Trek. We had. Carl Stryken, who was the giant on Twin Peaks and Lurch in the Adams Family movies. Oh, yeah. Um, and he had been in a couple of my films. He had been in the Oblivion films that I made in Romania, the sci-fi western. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But um, anyway, it was just this incredible film. And in retrospect, we had three freaking Oscar winners in it. We had Rod Steiger, Billy Bob Thornton, and yeah, Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> <laughs> But uh,
1: I I, I got to say the the by the way the Oblivion films we're we're eventually I want to sit you down and just do nothing but talk about the the two Oblivion films for just an entire hour one day that's that's something that I definitely
0: want to so, do so so much fun I mean we could talk forever but th- those films were you know with Julie Newmar from who was Catwoman and George Takei from Star Trek and
2: mm-hmm. Carl Striken
0: again playing the the Undertaker um meg foster we had maxwell caulfield um, Again, just the most amazing amazing cast and um had so much fun making those and we did i got to do some stop motion animation so i did my big homage to ray harryhausen
1: yeah that monster kid never gets too far from you does it
0: far never 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 and then of course the big the the most fun i've ever had my entire career, was making Elvira's Haunted Hills.
1: Which is one of my favorite <laughs> movies that you've done. Oh, my God, I love that movie so freaking well, much.
0: thank you so much. It was a total labor of love for both Cassandra, who is Elvira, and I, because we were both such Vincent Price fanatics. And uh, I had met, after I did my first film, Guilty as Charged, I went to a party that... It, Hollywood, you know, your typical Hollywood party, they would, they would have, you know, a few celebrities there. And it was thrown, the party was given by Terry Sweeney, who was a regular on Saturday Night Live in the 80s. He played, he always did Nancy Reagan in drag. And he was the first openly gay cast member of Saturday Night Live. And I think he was only on for one season, maybe two seasons. But he was a writer, behind the scenes of Saturday Night Live for several seasons. And his boyfriend was a co-writer, with his, his comedy writing partner, named Lanier Laney. And I knew Lanier from University of South Carolina. And Lanier was on the film committee and everything when we were organizing the Brian Obama Film Festival. And so uh-huh. I had gotten to know, through Lanier, I'd gotten to know Terry. And when I was living in New York in the 80s, my now husband and I would go... To see tapings of the of Saturday night live and, and got to know some of the cast members and all through Lanier and Terry. And it was just, you lucky dog. And then, so anyway, Terry and Lanier invite me to this Hollywood party. They're now living in LA as, as am I. And in the corner, I see sitting in a chair, Cassandra Peterson and her film Elvira mistress of the dark had come out a, a couple of years earlier. And I was just totally starstruck. And I said, Terry, you've got to introduce me to Cassandra. And he takes me over there. I'm, you know, fawning and telling her how much I love her and everything about her and loved the first movie that she had done and loved her hosting gigs and everything. And Terry says, oh, and Cassandra, Sam is a director. He did a film called Guilty is Charged. And Cassandra goes, oh, Guilty is Charged. I just saw that. I love that film. In fact, I loved it so much. I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever get to do another Elvira film, I want you to direct it. And I'm like, and, and I'm like, is this what happens at Hollywood parties? Like people get drunk and just say crazy things, or you know what? Is going on. And so we became friends, and then she did a, I did a, God, I skipped over one of my films. It's really fun to talk about. It's called Acting on Impulse. It's a scream queen Who Done It. It stars Nancy Allen. Linda Fiorentino, uh, C. Thomas Howell, and I got Cassandra to come in and do a cameo as a bouncer at a country western bar. She's not playing uh, Elvira, but she borrowed a blonde wig from Daryl Hannah and does this kind of Dolly Parton shtick out in, out in front of this country western bar. It's hilarious. So, so I had worked, you know, as a director for Cassandra, at least for this this one little cameo bit, and then you know, we, she would invite me to her parties and we just kind of kept in touch, you know, over the next several years. Well, then in the late 90s, she calls me up and she goes, hey, we're finally going to do a second Elvira film. And I know I had talked to you about possibly directing, but my husband and I are actually financing the film ourselves because we couldn't get anybody else to want to do it. And my husband has convinced me that we really want to wanted to consider a number of directors and everything, but we still want you to come in and interview for the job. And I'm like, okay, this feels a little more sober. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I'll go in and compete for this job. And so I go in and meet with them, and she hands me the script, and she goes, now, this is a spoof of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies of the 60s, like The Pendulum and House of Usher Etc., etc.
1: Immediately the bells go off in your head, of course.
0: And she goes, Are you familiar with those films? And I said, Cassandra. Here is Vincent Price's monologue from the climax of Pit and the Pendulum. (laughs) Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You are about to enter hell hell, the (laughs) never world, the infernal region, the abode of the damned, a place of torment, Yahina, Naraka, the pit. And the pendulum, the razor edge of destiny, thus the condition of man, bound on an island from which he can never escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And she kind of cocked her head to the side and said, you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) And... I I, that, I I committed to my brain. The reason I knew that is when I was in junior high school. One of the assignments was uh, like in a acting class or in the drama department. They had said they wanted us to do a monologue, and I said, "Can I?" And they, you know, we want you to do Shakespeare. We want you to do you know whatever. And I'm like, I'm not interested in Shakespeare. <laughs> And <laughs> I said, uh, could I do McGraw um, and Poe? And they were like, yes. You know, and that sounded very academic. Well, I went home and I had tape recorded. These are the days long before videotape or anything. I had tape recorded on a reel-to-reel tape the movie Pit and the Pendulum off of the speaker of our TV.
1: Oh, man. When I was a kid, we used to do that all the time. Yeah, I think
0: all of us monster kids who were old enough did that. And yeah. I transcribed his monologue, which of course wasn't written by Edgar Allan <laughs> Poe. It was written by Richard Battenfeld. No. Who wrote the script? But I weren't. I wasn't going to tell my teachers that because they probably wouldn't have let me do it. <laughs> so no. if I could, you know, get by on this academia of Edgar Allan Poe, they'd let me do it. So that's what I did. And but in learning that. Monologue. It just stayed with me forever, and it stayed with me right now. I was not reading that. I, that was committed to memory, and it came <laughs> that day, and it got me that job. And uh, so, you know, again, Vincent Price, <laughs> speaking from the grave, you know, was helping me get, you know, the the what I consider to be the most important job of my whole career. And uh, it was it was just incredible. We shoted we shot out Virus Haunted Hills in Romania. We try the Vincent Price character in the film is an amalgam of all those characters from Pit and the Pendulum, House of Usher. He, you know, if you recall those characters, he, he, he always had some kind of sensitivity. He could either, like in House of Usher, he could his his hearing was particularly acute he could hear the rats gnawing inside coffins in the dungeon when he was on, you know, way in the other wing of the castle and things like that. Hearing was very cute. Then in in hitting the pendulum, he had uh, his sense of taste was, was off the charts. So he had to eat like really bland things. And he, you know, so we combined all of those things into one character where, you know, that he was just afflicted in every conceivable way. And, Mm -hmm. We tried to get Christopher Lee, mm-hmm. whose agent said, "No, he you know, he's put those kinds of movies behind him." And so we were very disappointed about that. Then we tried to get, of all people Mick Jagger <laughs> who just was not available because they had a tour going. and then someone recommended Richard O'Brien of Rocky Horror Picture Show, who played rip rap, but also. Had actually written Rocky Horror, the play, the screenplay, the music, the lyrics, everything. He is Mr. <laughs> Rocky Horror, and it turns out that he's a humongous Vincent Price fan and totally understood exactly everything we were spoofing, and probably could have recited the the monologue that I could from <laughs> from Bitten Pendulum or or darn near close, and uh, and he jumped at the chance to play it and um, was you know, in retrospect was was the perfect choice. And uh
1: it is really now hard to imagine someone else playing that role, yeah.
0: Yeah, it really is. And he just was amazing. And then we got um Mary Shear, who was a regular on Mad TV, uh, to play Lady Helzibus, and we've got a a good friend of mine, Scott Atkinson, to come in and play Doctor Bradley Bradley. (laughs) He had known Scott for several years and at parties he would he would regale people with this this dead on impersonation of um George Sanders from all about Eve. <laughs> and <laughs> And so I said to Cassandra, I said, what if what if we got Scott to play Dr. Bradley Bradley in that voice, in the voice of George Sanders from All About Eve? And we just cracked up laughing and had Scott come in and read the part that way and we were all on the floor laughing. It was so funny. So he did that. And at the climax of the film, we find out that he isn't really this upper crust British guy, that he's actually a charlatan and he's a low class Cockney. So we, we said, do you think you could maybe switch at that point to do a Cockney accent? And he says, well, I can do a dead on Dick Van Dyke for Mary Poppins. Will that work? And we were like, Oh my God, (laughs) more than perfect. So, he goes from George Sanders to Dick Van Dyke and it's, it just is absolutely brilliant. So, so perfect. And, uh, and then the other funny thing that happened with the casting on that is that we, for this, for the stable stud, that is like the hunk that Elvira is lusting after mm-hmm. trying to get Fabio. <laughs> oh, that would have been good. Yeah. He, uh, he just didn't really see the humor of it or whatever. And he turned it down and we we're like, okay, whatever. And at this point, you know, we were having to ship everybody over to Romania to do this. And and the budget was really tight. And we decided, you know what? There's got to be a hunky guy with long hair, you know, who looks like a romance cover boy. There's got to be somebody in Romania that we can cast. Yeah, surely. Save our money and cast someone there. So we get over there and we start auditioning people. And. First of all, they didn't, you know, a lot of them didn't have the long hair that we wanted. I was really determined to find somebody with real long hair because I thought any wig that we put on somebody is going to look totally phony, and I always hate that, and it just looks, it looks really bad, and we don't have the money to get, you know, some, you know, $10,000 perfect wig and hire a a wig artist and to to really make it look good. So we just, we we limited it to, to people with long hair, and so... Nobody, they couldn't, most of them couldn't speak English, but they weren't handsome enough, you know, whatever. And finally, this one guy walks into the room and it was just it. I mean, he had the look. He was absolutely gorgeous, muscle guy, long hair, everything, but he could not speak a word of English. We tried to get him to say the words phonetically. You couldn't understand a single word, nothing. <laughs> And then suddenly I turned to Cassandra and I said, wait a minute. What if he just went ahead and spoke all of his lines in Romanian and we post-dubbed him badly, like in the Hercules movies? Yeah. <laughs> and she started to giggle and like, oh my God, do you think we could get it? A- do you think that would... It could be really funny, don't you think? And I'm like, yes, I think it could be really funny. But he had a number of scenes throughout the film. This wasn't just one little isolated moment. And so we were both a little concerned that, you know, is this going to be a one joke thing that's going to wear out really quick? So we were, but we went ahead and did it, and we got this great guy whose name escapes me. I'm so sorry. Who who did the dubbing? Ga- is it Gabriel? And well, or something like that. That's his. that's the actor's name. But we got a, a a guy locally in Los Angeles when we were in post-production. Oh, to actually, dub him and to dub the voice. and um, gosh, I have to I have to get back to you on who that was. But anyway, he um he did lots of cartoon voices and just had a million voices in his head. And he came in and just killed it. And we were just screaming with laughter in the in the recording studio as he was, you know, badly dubbing the voice. <laughs> and, um, and so then we had this guy do some other voices in the film, too. There's a gentleman who was in the coach at the very last scene, and that actor, Jerry Jackson, was also the choreographer that we had brought over to choreograph the musical number, and he wrote the song um, that, they, that they do, um, The Life is Like a Music Hall. But while Jerry was over there, you know, we put him in this one little scene. Well, he was was not much of an actor. And we thought, you know, we can improve his performance if we get this guy to dub him. Let's have let's have him dub him in the voice of Terry Thomas <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> and, and on Terry Thomas. And so that was really funny. And then there's another scene in the movie where we do a little riff on Jack Nicholson in The Shining with the, <laughs> the ancient uh, landlord who uses an axe to, to you know crack open a hole in the door and leans his head in and says, here's Johan And so this is- I have to say man,
1: the, the joy of this, the joy of the film is this is kind of what I always wanted. I wanted there to be a series of these kind of Elvira, Elvira movies where they're they're set in the period and the only one in on the joke that it's a period piece that everybody is acting in is Elvira.
0: that is that is exactly. one of the things I love. Exactly what i wanted to do too and, and cassandra and i even collaborated on a vampire script called um elvira versus the vampire vixens and you know it was it was taking her character and just dropping it into you know these different genres and i wanted so much to do that but of course none of that's ever happened and okay whatever but um we had an absolute freaking blast making that movie it was so much fun
1: well the film is such a joy to watch i mean yes it's 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 more exciting as a as a as a monster kid because of course we we all are watching it and going well yeah he he's touching on everything here from the roger corman films and the hammer movies from that period all those gothics and it is that that Accidental casting of someone who can't speak English that adds what I consider to be the final touch of sheer brilliance where my monster kid soul just starts to scream with joy. And that is the idea of also, by the way, we're going to make sure that you're aware that we're aware of all of the Italian made gothics of the period as well, like, you know, the Barbara Steele film, start the Barber Steele films and things of that nature yep. with this one character who stands out because he's so obviously dubbed. It's sheer genius there's so much built within it and you know years later listening just listening to to talking to you over dinner and finding out that that was not something that was conceived of originally in the script shocked the hell out of me because it was just like, oh my God, no, don't don't you understand? That's perfect. That needed to be there to begin with. And that's just, that's the perfect amount of little icing on top of this already fantastic cake because it's like, no, no, no. Yes, of course, it's clear the, the Corman Poe films and obviously the gothics of Hammer, but also we're not going to shy away from, you know, the, the
0: gothics that
1: Antonio Margariti made and Mario Bava made and all those things. Those are there
0: too. Everything was, was fair game. And, uh, and, you know, it like with that, with dubbing that guy, it was way funnier and way better than it would have been with Fabio. So it was just this wonderful, happy compromise that was, that turned out to be so much better. And going back to what I was saying where we thought, it, you know, we, we were risking it being a one joke thing and people would get tired of it. Uh-uh. When we would go to, we had, we showed a lot of uh, midnight shows of, Elbira's Haunted Hills. And Cassandra and I would go to them and introduce them and do Q&As after and stuff. And we were just amazed how different jokes would play different ways, different screenings. It's amazing how, how different people, different audiences react to comedies. But without fail, every time that guy came on the screen and started talking in that badly dubbed voice, every audience, no matter what, they cracked up every time. And yeah. it got to the point where all they would just see him and before he would open his mouth, they'd already be laughing because they were just were so delighted for it to have another moment of this silliness. And it just turned out to be one of the funniest things of the whole
1: film. The music performance, by the way, the the whole music hall song, that whole musical sequence, I, I swear, man, that, that 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 hasn't got excerpted and just shown as a short in places. That that is absolutely hilarious. Elvira, or, or should I say Cassandra, has never been funnier as the character than in
0: that sequence. Yeah, well, I, I I agree with you. I think it's I think it's fantastic. Now next year is the twentieth anniversary, and Cassandra has gotten back all of the rights to the film, um, and she's hoping to you know get it out in a big way next year, either with streaming or a Blu-ray. Or both oh, or whatever. So we're you were just, you know, hoping that uh, you know, we'll be celebrating that film a lot more and introducing it to a lot of people that have never been exposed to it. I get shocked. There are Elvira fans
1: who are unaware the film exists. It really surprises me.
0: You won't be able to move. You won't be able to scream. You won't be able to take your eyes off of Elvira's haunted hills. Allow me to present, Elvira.
3: Yeah, nice meeting you too.
0: Elvira,
3: entertainer extraordinaire.
0: See, Elvira stretch herself as an actress in her most challenging role. I just
3: love butterflies ever so much.
0: Richard O'Brien in his most horrifying performance since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh why? Why?
3: Why? Snap out of it. What are you going for, an Oscar?
0: A film that is so steamy...
3: Lord have mercy.
0: (laughs) So shocking. That's another unfortunate Elzebus family trait. Catalepsy.
2: Fear of cats? You'll
3: scream. Yes, you You'll gasp.
0: (gasps) You'll die laughing. Laugh!
3: Damn, I hate when that happens.
0: From the masterfully macabre mind of Elvira.
3: Right, like there's something going on in my mind.
0: Elvira's haunted hills. The village people say this castle is evil.
1: Yeah, who listens to
3: the village people anymore?
1: Huh? I'm so excited to know that you and uh, Cassandra are going to be able to do something. I'm really, of course, I'm a I'm a physical media kind of guy, so I'm really hoping that there's a Blu-ray out there because what I really what I really want is a raft of extras, including a commentary track with you and Miss Peterson sitting down in a nice recording studio, getting comfortable and telling tales out of school about the making of the movie.
0: Yeah, I I want that too. Now we did do a an, an, uh, commentary track on one of the later. DVD releases, but I think we should also do a new one as well. Um, Yeah, it would be so much fun. And I'm like you, I want, I want a Blu-ray. I want the actual, I want to have it in my hand, the tactile experience. (laughs) Oh,
1: exactly. Oh, I forgot to mention, we should probably touch on the really briefly. I'll have to have you back and we're obviously going to have you back and talk about oblivion, but I just wanted to thank you for whatever behind the scenes pull or push that you got involved with on the, uh, the Screen Factory release of Frankenstein: The True Story. I know that your huge article in uh, Little Shop of Horrors uh, <laughs> probably had something to do with there being enough attention to finally get it released to Blu-ray. But I uh, just wanted to once again thank you for for getting whatever whatever um, whatever behind-the-scenes shenanigans you may have been involved in. Just thank you very much.
0: Oh my God. Well, Frankenstein, The True Story is one of my all-time favorite movies. I put it on the cover of my fanzine bazaar in 1974. And during my trips to London as a kid, I interviewed Jane Seymour. I interviewed Margaret Layton and met other people involved in the, in the project. So I was a huge fan right from the get-go, when it, right after it first aired. And to flash forward 40-some-odd years, Richard Clemenson, the editor and publisher of Little Shop of Horrors magazine, uh, calls me up and says, hey, we're, I want to do coverage on Frankenstein, the true story. Would you be interested in writing about it? And I'm would I? Yes. But <laughs> I need the entire issue. And so he gave me the keys to the castle and let me guest edit an entire 120 page issue of Little Shop of Horrors, all devoted to the movie. About 150,000 words. 400 photographs, and I ended up winning the Rondo Award for best article of the year, which I'm the proudest monster kid on the planet. Uh, it, it was it was just an incredible, incredible experience. And I re-interviewed Jane Seymour, and interviewed David McCallum, and Leonard Whiting, who played Dr. Frankenstein, and uh, the co-screenwriter, Don Bacardi, et cetera, et cetera. And I got Anne Rice to write the foreword for the magazine, Because Frankenstein, the true story was the movie that inspired her to write interview with a vampire that launched her entire career as a a great novelist. Um, And I got Mark data to write about the queer subtext of the film. I mean, it was just the most incredible issue ever. I'm so freaking proud of it. And you got to get a copy. It's Little Shop of Horrors, number 38, and you can get it directly um, from uh, their website, Little Shop of Horrors. And shop is spelled S-H-O-P-P-E fashioned.
1: let me version. highly recommend it as well. Yes, it's
0: extraordinary. Well, thank you. And then because of that, uh, and and the attention that I brought to the film, um, Shout Factory and their their horror division, Screen Factory, decided to finally put out a Blu-ray and do a remastering of the entire three-hour, two-part miniseries of Frankenstein's Story. And it came out in March of this year. Um, right when uh, the pandemic was starting to happen. But people are at home, and they need things to watch. So maybe the timing was good after all. And uh, they got me to um, do all of the extras for it. I do a three-hour epic commentary, which would just knock your socks off. And I re-interviewed for the third time Jane Seymour, this time on camera uh, from her house in Malibu. And I went to England to interview Leonard Whiting. We also got Don Bacardi, the co-screenwriter. And anyway, it's just fantastic. And Constantine Nasar also co-produced all of these extras with me and did all of the post-production um, and putting it all together. And Mark Maddox, the great Rondo, six-time Rondo award-winning artist,
1: don't blow more smoke up his ass.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, All right. All right. But anyway, Mark is just absolutely freaking incredible. And he did not only the cover of the Blu-ray, but he also did an entirely different piece on, uh, for the cover of little shop of ours, which is a three panel fold out mural. That's just unbelievable. Absolutely to die for. So, um, anyway, both of those are great companion pieces to get the blu-ray and the magazine together
1: i'm just i'm just so glad that uh, i mean it's one thing to buy that issue of the magazine and to to go through it and to be kind of thrilled and then to sit down with the to to be honest heaven sent but rather lame old dvd of the film and go (laughs) you know this could look a lot better and then a few short months later thank god it does
0: yep it it's incredible and the 2k um, remastering of it i mean the film has never looked this good it was it couldn't have looked that good on nbc when it first aired in 1973 because the resolution on our tv sets back then weren't weren't that good i mean it's just it's unbelievably gorgeous so highly 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 recommended and it's and it's it's an incredible version of the frankenstein story it's certainly not the true story that was a late um title change by NBC, which was just completely ludicrous because the movie is not in any way faithful to the book, and it's certainly not a true story, and uh, <laughs> the movie was, was written and produced and shot under the title Dr. Frankenstein. Not the most exciting title in the world either, but at least uh, it, it doesn't say a lie the way the true story does, But um, and don't go in expecting it to be a faithful adaptation of the book you're in for a treat. And it's really got a lot more to do with the James Whale, Frankenstein, and Bride of Frankenstein. In fact, the James Mason character, Dr. Polidori, is directly based on Dr. Praetorius, played by Ernest Bessinger in Bride of Frankenstein. In in fact, the early drafts of the script called him Dr. Praetorius. So check it out.
1: Well, just out of curiosity, uh, as a fellow monster kid lunatic, uh, just uh, not, not to put you on the spot, but almost all monster fans have an answer to this question. Uh, what is your favorite universal horror film?
0: Well, my favorite film of all time is The Bride of Frankenstein, ah. directed by one of my all-time favorite directors, James Whale. And what, one thing we didn't touch on, Uh, which I'm just trying to make it as brief as I can. No, go ahead. I freaking got to co-executive produce a little film called Gods and Monsters, directed by Bill Condon. And that film won the Oscar for Best Screenplay, and Bill Condon not only directed it, but adapted the screenplay from a book called Father of Frankenstein by Christopher Bram. And the movie is about the director, James Whale, played by Sir Ian McKellen. And uh, there's a flashback scene in the movie on the set of Bride of Frankenstein in the laboratory where James Whale is directing uh, the actors. And we literally recreated the laboratory set from Bride of Frankenstein on, at Lacey Studios in downtown Los Angeles.
1: Another dream and
0: come true. An unbelievable dream come true. We found uh, the original laboratory equipment that had been created by Kenneth Strickfaden, that was used in the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and a ton of other universal movies. And it was also um, resurrected by Mel Brooks in Young Frankenstein. And it was also used in <laughs> Dracula versus Frankenstein in the uh <laughs> I guess early seventies or so that Forrest G. Ackerman had a cameo in and got a lot of rich and famous monsters. And, um, but anyway, Al
1: Adamson film. Yeah. That just came out on Blu-ray by the way.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So yes, that equipment has been in a lot of movies and we tracked down the collector that has that. Don't ask me his name. I forget, but, um, and he, and it could have changed hands five times since we used it. But, uh, I made sure that that set was an absolute accurate recreation and we found actors like Rosalind Ayers who came in to do Elsa Lanchester in the in the wig as the bride and just looked exactly like her. I mean it was her hair was standing on end but so the hair on the back of my neck was standing on end all day when we were shooting that. It was just the <laughs> most incredible dream come true. Uh-
1: well, not to you know we we we've been, we've been talking for a while, and I didn't want to get I didn't want to let you out of here without talking about what you've been up to the past few years, which is you've kind of uh, found a, a rather interesting two pronged niche for a director here, which is uh, Christmas movies and uh, Lifetime movie thrillers.
0: Yes, I'm either killing people or giving them gifts. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. I've I'm kind of typecast now. In this in this niche of um, making TV movies for Lifetime and for Hallmark, and most of the Lifetime ones are thrillers. I've done fifteen of them now, Jeez. and I've but also I did one Christmas movie for Lifetime called My Christmas Prince. I did that a couple years ago, and then um, and then for the Hallmark channel, I do mostly Christmas movies. I've done eight of them so far and I've even done a couple of bride movies for them. Uh, Last year we did Sister of the Bride and a couple years before that we did Mothers of the Bride. They have like a, (laughs) they do bridal movies in June and they do Christmas movies in December. So anyway, that's kind of uh, what I do these days and I'm perfectly happy because they call me, I don't have to go out and beg and look for work and so when I'm between gigs, I write articles like on the Frankenstein the True Story and do things that are just labor of love, monster kid stuff and that's my life now it, it, and, and, and I love it um, I just had last night a Lifetime Thriller premiere uh, It was this was um, May 15th Engaged to a Psycho we shot it under the title Murder at the Mansion but they always change the titles when they air it on Lifetime and uh, it was loads of fun and it had Audrey Landers from Dallas, and um, you know, is just it was just really fun. And then I have one that I shot last December under the title "Secrets in the Air," and it's going to air on Lifetime in on July 25th of this year, and they've changed the title to "Mile High Escort." So it's a very classy, you know, art house type. Movie. <laughs>
1: I I would ask what the plot is, but I think I already know.
0: I think the title says it all. So you know, it uh, do do not miss that one. Mark it on your calendar, July (laughs) twenty (laughs) fifth.
1: Well, I have to say that uh, I've always shied away Uh, growing up. Growing up with a lot of uh, very strong-willed female relatives Uh, at holidays, my entire life, the television is usually locked. Uh, when I, whenever I visit, like my grand, whenever, whenever I visit my grandmother's house or my aunt's house or my mother's house, there would the, the television would in, invariably be locked on to uh, either the Hallmark Channel during the holidays or the Lifetime Channel, either one, because they're they're hunting for a 24/7 dose of Christmas cheer. And uh, so I just always I would always see sections of these. You know, I was sitting in the chair long enough before I got called into the kitchen to help do something or called outside to do something else. And I always just thought, okay, no, I'm I'm, I'm, these are not my kind of movies. I'm not going to bother with these. But then, of course, I meet you and you corrupt me. (laughs) So this past this past December, uh, Beth and I sat down and we're like, okay, Sam's got a new one coming out. It's coming. It's called it's called Check in to Christmas in being I.N.N. Uh, yeah yep we sat we sat down we're like okay we're gonna we're gonna watch Sam's new Christmas movie we're gonna check this out and uh against my better judgment
0: uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it <laughs> <laughs> well thank you very much thank you very much the uh the, you know the plots to these movies are you know fairly predictable but I think the, you know it's like comfort food it's like you 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 know what what taste you want and and just you know, savoring that flavor again and again is something that people seem to really love. And so, you know, I just have a blast making them. And my feeling is with Christmas movies, you know, if somebody's flipping around the channels, if they just happen upon one little moment of any of my Christmas movies, I want that frame to scream, scream Christmas. So literally, I have our art department decorate <laughs> an explosion, a nuclear explosion of Christmas decor everywhere. And I have, I think, the world record in a, in a house in one of my movies. It's sort of a living room that opens up into a dining room that opens up into the kitchen. So it is sort of a great room. But I stuffed 11 Christmas trees in that one space <laughs> so that no matter which direction, which close up, which whatever... There was always going to be Christmas lights in the background, and that's kind of how I approach every set and that I go into in these movies, and I tell my production designers, and especially if they're new, I said, you know, don't think I'm exaggerating. Don't think I'm kidding. I need you to get at least, you know, 15 to 20 Christmas trees, have them pre-decorated on the truck, ready to go, because when we pull into a location, I'm going to say, I'm just going to walk with you, and I'm going to say, I want a tree there, 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 there. And it works out great, and the you know the network is always really really happy with the look of my films because they they really are Christmas to the max.
1: Well, they do like I say. I've seen one now all the way through. Enjoyed it. It does scream Christmas from every pore of its being. It's it's the most Christmas that one can have without. Uh, I, I will say I, I am I am that person who's sitting there going, uh, they're outside and you can't see their
0: breath. So I don't know what time of yeah. the year this
1: is shot, but you know.
0: Yeah. So many times we are shooting them in, you know, you know, 90 degree weather and they're in their poor winter clothes. The one time that we got lucky, it was a film called Christmas Land. And we it had um, it had Maureen McCormick from the Brady Bunch, you know, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Yeah. It was shot in November and we finished just before Thanksgiving and it aired December 10th. I mean that it was the one of the fastest turnarounds ever. The post production we we were I had my editor on location, you know, editing every day and I would go in and look at scenes and you know, I my director's cut had to be turned in like 2 days after we finished shooting. It was just an insane
1: schedule. Was that planned or was there some well, kind of screw up? Well, you know a schedule?
0: lot of these films they drag their feet getting the scripts approved and there's always more notes about no, they need another draft. And it just seems like they always end up getting made in the fall. And then there's so many of them being made um, that, you know, this one just didn't get greenlit until the very last second. And they were like, you know, they're like, well, can you do it for this year? Or should we wait until next year? And, you know, the production company is like, you know, let's do it. You know, it's, a, it's a, before they change their minds or you know, <laughs> give it to someone else. So they were like hey, we we, we got to figure out a way to do it so when we were shooting and we were shooting in utah the weather was there we didn't have snow but the weather was cold and so we sh- we had the breath and then the fake snow that we put out and the lawns and everything a lot of it is this foamy stuff that you spray out with hoses and if it's hot weather it evaporates in 15 20 minutes and you'll you know, the lawn will start having bald spots and you'll have to go in and start retouching and, and putting in more, you know, filling in this foamy stuff. Well, in the cold weather, it didn't evaporate at all. It stayed there all day. So it sped up our production. You know, we 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 didn't have to keep retouching and waiting on snow all the time. The breath you could see. The actors, you know, when they're truly cold, their body language is different. They're holding their arms yeah. together. There's, you know, they, they're. They, it just affected everything. And that movie is probably my favorite of all of the Christmas movies I've done because it just feels right. It feels cold. And anyway, I just I I think that's a really good one to look for. And they rerun it every year. It's called Christmas Land. And uh, so look for that one because that, that's one that I'm really, really especially proud of because of those those little added elements. And so if I, you know, got asked to do another one in a you know, that type of crazy schedule, I would jump at the chance because I, I think it, it really helped the film. Well
1: uh, the, the thrillers and things like that, I mean do you do you generate any of these uh, thriller scripts or any of these ideas? Because they seem like they'd be the kind of thing that would come to mind for you. Um, um no. <laughs> i <I've, laughs>
0: bummer, man. I have gotten to the point in my career where um, you know these the, the scripts of these networks they're very strict with their formulas of what they want and what they don't want and the scripts ah. usually go through a lot of rewrites a lot of notes they end up hiring different writers to come in and whatnot and it's a it you've heard the term development hell it that, that's exactly what it is and i've been through that hell about a thousand too many times i practically have ptsd from it post-traumatic stress <clears throat> and I, I i'm a director i love to direct i want to be on the set i want to i want to be directing actors i want to be were you know thinking of ways to shoot it in an interesting way i don't want to be involved in that development hell process so I basically have now set up my shingle as I am a director for hire, period. Don't even send me the script until you're done, you're financed, ready to go, ready to make me an offer, and then I will read it. (laughs) I don't wanna read an early draft that's gonna go through six hundred changes, and by the time I get to the set I'm confused as to what's in and what's out and You know, so I that's what I don't
1: don't send it to you looking for you to make notes on it. You're ready. You want the finished product. That's exactly
0: what I do. And I and so, you know, it sounds really haughty, but I'm able to do it because I'm in demand. I mean, I usually before this pandemic, I was usually doing four to six of them a year, which is, you know, an unbelievable amount of output. And and I want the time off between projects to do my labor of love monster kid writing for horror magazines or whatever as kind of an antidote to, you know, the, the, the the film by committee sort of situation that you, that you deal with. And, and so that's what I love to do. I just want to, I want to get called, say, we're going to start shooting in in four weeks. We need you there two weeks ahead of time for pre-production and boom, you know, it's in and out. And I turn in my director's cut and and basically walk away and and then wait for the phone to ring for the next one. And that that's what I love. I love, love, love that so that I'm spending most of my time when I am when I'm working on those gigs actually directing a movie
1: <laughs> well you sound like someone who really loves not just the the creative process of directing but you seem to all, all also really love out working with
0: the actors oh I, I love it i absolutely love every every bit of it and and i love the editing process working with an editor which is very solitary, you know, after you've been on set with a crew of 50 people and, and a whole ton of actors and, you know, people asking you questions all day long. And it's just, just total chaos. And then, you know, you're in an editing room with one person. <laughs> it's a it's a great sort of uh, antidote to to the craziness of shooting. But um, I love both of those extremes. There is it's just so much fun. So, so much fun. And, and I love the people I treat my crew, everybody from the top to the bottom, I treat them all equally. Um, I learn everybody's name. Um, I thank everybody by name every day at the end of the day and shake their hands. Maybe we won't be shaking hands after this uh, situation. Right now. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, for me, it's just an absolute joy from the time I get to set until the time I go home every day. It's, it's working with with people and everybody with the common goal of making this the best thing it can possibly be.
1: Well, I do, I do have sympathy for you in one area, which is that uh, if not for the COVID-19 hell that we're all in currently, you'd be in Hawaii making a movie right now.
0: Yes. I was supposed to be in Hawaii making a, a, it's a romantic comedy for Hallmark called Renovate My Heart. And it's even listed on IMDb in pre-production. and But that's been on hold now. And uh, we'll see. When As soon as production can start resuming again, we will jump into that and, um, and get that one made. I hope, hope, hope that the location in Hawaii will stay because um, I really <laughs> want to make a film in Hawaii. <laughs> who would not? But traveling, yeah. you know, could be a problem. And who knows? They may even end up they may have to end up switching that to shoot it in Malibu or something locally here. But um, either way, we're going to definitely make that movie happen and uh, you know, hopefully sooner rather than later, but we'll, you know, we'll see. It's just, it's hard to know how productions can safely get up and running before there's a vaccine. And, you know, everybody's trying to figure out the ins and outs of what that would look like.
1: Yeah. It's going to be a very difficult process. And, and it, I can't even imagine I mean in films there are, there are little tricks that you can pull to get away with certain things but I'm I keep thinking about stage actors and I'm just going well, well first of all you know how do you,
0: how do you how do you get an audience in the building Oh no that's the uh, you know, the, the, yeah, the live productions I mean you know I just that's going to be really difficult but you know also in going back to just a film set I mean yeah you know you could do social distancing with some of the crew you can have people wear masks but your actors they can't wear masks and what if the scene calls you know every hallmark movie the climax has the guy and the girl kiss <laughs> it's, a, it's like a, it, it's it's almost required so you know how are you going to have romantic moments and how do you cast the grandparents when when the disease i mean when the virus is you know attacks you know old, older folks more susceptible more susceptible and you know, I just read that they've that they've passed Betty White and or have signed Betty White to do a Hallmark film. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I hope they're gonna be, you know, they're gonna have to be so freaking careful with you know, with anyone who's a little more susceptible to this. And uh so, you know, anyway, it's just it's it's gonna be very tricky.
1: Yeah, then again though, with Betty White, I get the sense she's the kind of woman who, who kinda wants to go out with her boots on.
0: So <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. But you know, and the uh, the other hand, and I mean, I don't want to be too morbid here, but you know, nobody wants to see the film that started up production sooner than they should have and had some fatalities as a result of it uh, in the crew or the cast, and you know, oh my God, that would just be horrific. So you know, whatever is going to happen has got to be done in an incredibly well thought out and careful sort of situation.
1: If we can get to a place where we have uh, an easy, quick test that can be done daily on a number of people, then you can start talking about certain limited things getting done. But yeah, until then, I mean, we can't even, I mean, you know, we're a ways away from a vaccine, but if we get testing up and running, at least we can start, you know, signifying that, okay, these people Tested yeah. today. Yeah, fine, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and um, you know, there's been interesting proposals made um about you know quarantining a cast and crew for two weeks to and testing them and making sure that everything is fine, but then keeping them on a you know isolated. Like if you were going to shoot, like if we went to Hawaii for instance, we could isolate ourselves on you know a property and have you know the everybody staying in you know. A particular, I don't know. You you would have to. It, it would be very hard. It would still be very hard to isolate to make sure you weren't mixing in with the public. But um, but you know, they're just. It, it's just figuring out how do you do this. You know, how do you, how do you make sure that everybody is is staying healthy and safe and and you know not bringing something in and and spreading it. We'll we'll see. We'll see. I'm hoping it's going to be sooner rather than later. It'll get figured out. It's
1: going to be interesting to see how it yeah. gets figured out. But it will no, get figured we out somewhere.
0: Ha- and we have to get back to business, and, and not just in the film business, but everywhere true very true sam i cannot thank you
1: enough for dropping by and talking with me i i knew that this would be the way it would be we would (laughs) we would get you talking and uh the stories would come pouring out of you
0: and then not and then not be able to stop me from talking
1: okay (laughs) that's just it man i I don't want to stop you from talking i just i'm glad you're willing to tell these stories
0: oh love it It, it's so much fun and it's crazy when i think back of all the nutty things that i've done and and you know it's just it's amazing. It's it's pretty, pretty crazy life. Sam, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. And look forward to the next. I'll come back and we'll do a show on just oblivion.
1: <laughs> that will be a blast. Although I know, I know what will happen is we'll start there and we will branch off in other directions.
0: <laughs> and that's okay. Yep. Yep. All right. Thank well, you, have man. fun editing this down. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: a, it's a solitary job, Sam. <laughs>
0: somebody's got to do it <laughs> talk right. to you soon all right take care thanks rodney bye, bye.
1: well how'd you like that occasionally I get to have an exciting person come on and just tell stories. I love those kind of episodes. Once again I want to thank Sam Irvin for coming on, being a guest on the show, and being so willing to just tell all those tales. It's one thing to sit around a dinner table or even a breakfast table and hear some of these stories. It's quite another to know that other people are going to be able to hear these things because, man, they don't need to be little bitty secrets. These stories are amazing. I will never get over the image of Christopher Lee trying to compose himself after after Hervé Villaché's prostitute story. That image will never leave my mind. So once again, thanks to Sam. If you have any (laughs) any questions or comments about the show, uh, if you have a topic that you'd like to have Sam touch on the next time that he comes on the show, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com write give us your thoughts and uh we will try to read them out or at least take them into account the next time that we record uh coming up next few episodes um john hudson and i are going to be covering a harold lloyd comedy from the 20s that's a real change of pace for us as well and then troy and i are getting back to our uh 1940s universal horror series with the Mad Doctor of Market Street. And then, uh, man, not really sure exactly what will come after that, but we've got a few interesting things lined up, including another special guest that I can't wait to get onto the show. So thank you very much for listening. I'm hoping that you introduce others to the show, hoping that you enjoy the show. And uh, we will talk to you again next time. Stay safe.
3: Ago, when I was so small, I slipped into a music hall. How was I to know? Curiosity would cost me my virginity. In a single night, I learned all the facts about the birds and bees and tit for tat. I remember seven Turkish acrobats who taught me on the natural act. I was out to play with the entire band, I had them all right in my hand. The pianist confessed to me, there was a horse in his family tree. A contortionist me to get his kicks, forcing little me into the Chinese whip. Girlfriend, the trained dogs were quite a treat. They thought moi was a bitch and hee. Marriage, but I've been tied down By the way, the jugglers were living dolls And they taught me how to juggle all their balls I learned how to
2: fold my
3: belly, air, Show my license, bam! Yes, I'm in the air Yes, I often stop thinking to recall Life is like a music hall Yah!